going, okay, I'm leaving, and this is what I'm leaving behind. And he's trying to get to these guys. So he's just fed uh, the 4,000. And then it says in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, let's start this off. Our three for the road, number one, has Jesus become enough? Or are you demanding he proves himself over and over? Is Jesus enough? Or are you one of these people who's going, well, I need to see more. I need more. I need this. And then I need this. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. How many of you as parents, or if you've ever been in any kind of leadership position, have ever had somebody who you just believe they're just trying to test you? They're just trying to push you, or just to make you angry in that. Uh, all of us have experienced that with our kids. I know in my years of coaching, there have been players who just constantly like push it, and push it, and push it. And the Pharisees are pushing it. Now, interesting enough, what are they asking from Jesus? A sign. Now, what they're asking for is for Jesus to do some spectacular sign. You know, create rainbows, create shooting stars, create all these different things. But here's the reality. What signs has Jesus done up to this point? Well, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, casting out demons, healing people, raising people up, doing all these different things. And I think at what point does Jesus go, what kind of sign do you guys need to see? But see, this is what the problem is. And this is what the problem is. Everyone wants to see miracles, but miracles don't make believers. They really don't. So it says, uh, but Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. I have to be honest with you, and I had this conversation with my middle son, Jack. He said to me, Dad, he said, the more I study in the health field and I look at things about the human body, he said, I, I have to literally hold myself from not laughing out loud at professors or students who will say there's no God. Because he said, I don't know how you can study the human body and not think that there's some master designer to the whole thing. He said it actually takes more faith to believe there isn't a master designer than to believe that someone is in control and that someone designed the human body. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, well, listen, you haven't really proved yourself. Show us something. Now, listen, we can be very judgmental of the Pharisees, but how many of us have ever put ourselves in the same boat? You know, Jesus, you don't even love me. Show me. Do something. But I want to contrast this. You see, the Pharisees know more than they're letting on. In John chapter 3, 1 through 3, I don't know if we have that for the screen or not, but in John 3, Jesus has interaction with Nicodemus. And it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. Now, when he says, we know, who's he speaking about? The other Pharisees. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do 
unless God is with him. So the Pharisees, behind closed doors, when no one else is around, what's the conversation? He has to be from God. He could not speak like this if he were not from God, and he could never perform these miracles if he were not from God. Now, knowing that information, what do they do? They go out to just push the issue, even though they know it. How many of you know what God desires of your life, but you still do something else? That's what's going on here. See, God is in this wrestling match for our hearts. And we keep trying to debate him on human terms. And how can you have a human interaction with an eternal, all-powerful God? Let's make this at home. Has Jesus become enough, or are you demanding he proves himself over and over? I was thinking about my own walk with the Lord, and I was saying, all right, Eric, you know, what's your spiritual pulse right now? Is it strong? Is it going well? What's your relationship with God right now? And I wrote down these words. This will make you feel really excited that I'm your pastor. Sometimes I look at my relationship with the Lord, and I, and I have this sense and conviction that I am an abusive follower of Jesus Christ. The Lord lovingly guides me. His spirit convicts me. It reveals countless actions and attitudes that damage me and my relationship with him. See, one of the things I'm realizing more and more is that Jesus is making things come to my consciousness. He is bringing things to my attention that are destructing or ruining me. And he wants to deal with them with me what? To help me. He blesses me in so many ways, and I see countless blessings, and in, I have to imagine, there's many blessings I'm completely oblivious to. In other words, if I said, hey Libby, I want you to sit down, I want you to list the many ways God's blessed you, you would start writing down all these different things. But then, if Jesus came down and sat down, I said, Jesus, tell me how you've blessed Libby. I would guess his list would be longer than yours, right? But what's Jesus' reward for doing all these things for Eric Segul? Well, I meet him with an attitude that says, where are you and why don't you help me? I'm an abusive follower. There are times where I think, where is my relationship with the Lord going? Often I have almost scorn for the Lord, feeling that somehow I am mistreated by, by feeling somehow that I am getting the raw end of the deal. How many of you walk around sometimes with a real grump about it, thinking somehow everyone else got it good, but I got it bad? Everyone else has this, and I got this. When I was in second grade, I went through second grade, and I remember at the end of second grade, and you'll see why I remember this so clearly, I was meeting with the teacher, and my mom was sitting there, and the teacher and mom were all, the three of us are talking, and then at the end of it, the teacher said, Eric, could you go stay in the hallway? I'd like to talk to your mom for a minute. Okay, yeah, and somehow or another, I think this has happened to you. Yeah. Where they, uh-oh, you're in trouble. But I actually wasn't in trouble. 
So I go outside, I'm sitting in the hallway, and a few minutes later, the teacher came back in, and she said, Eric, can you come back in and sit down? I sat down, and she said, uh, I'm in speaking with your mom, and she said, we think it would be best for you to repeat second grade again. And I remember thinking, well, why would I do that? And the teacher said, Eric, in all the testing and everything that we do, she said, you're barely getting by. And she said, actually, Eric, you're, one of the, you're the lowest in the class in passing these things. And I just remember, but here's the thing about this teacher. I still remember her name. Her name is Mrs. Mank. I knew that she loved me. I just knew that she did. I knew the way she looked at me, the way she would talk with me. And she said, so Eric, I want to spend another year with you. And she said, and I'm going to get you ready. And I'm going to tell you that I look back at that as a pivotal moment in my life. So I went to second grade for two years. I was the sharpest second grader by the end of my second year you've ever seen. But I went, maturity-wise, I went educationally from being barely on level to one of the tops in the class, and it kept going forward. Why do I share that? Because if I would have sat down the next year, and she said, you know what, you're going to repeat second grade again, and then again, and then again, well, that wouldn't look very good. I don't want to be the only second grader driving to school, right? I learned my lesson, I moved forward. But one of the things I think about in my walk with the Lord is the Lord goes, Eric, do you know, you repeat a lot of lessons. You know, Eric, I can't move you forward because, Eric, you still are in second grade spiritually. Eric, we can't go forward because you keep learning what's right, you keep getting pushed in the right direction, but you go back to the guys goofing around and messing up. Eric, I can't move you forward if you keep failing. And so many of us are saying, hey, God, you know what? I need more from you. And sometimes I think God's going, jeepers, Eric, if you just give me a little bit, we could move forward. Or we could have the same conversations over and over and over again. And spiritually, I know that's where I get caught a lot. For years, Pam and I used to, this illustration, and, and it's a, if you've ever want to read a great book, look up Love and Respect. It's a wonderful book about marriage. But for years, Pam and I were on the crazy train. And our marriage was just kind of the same. And I'm not saying it was bad or awful, but it was just kind of the same until somebody sent us on a marriage retreat. We looked at this and went, wait a minute. What? We kind of do the same thing. Like, it looks different, but it's really the same thing. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like God went, finally, let's get out of this and move on to this. I don't want to repeat grades anymore. And I don't want you to have to repeat grades anymore. Let's keep moving forward. Let's not question whether God needs to prove himself. Let's pick up our game. Let's keep going. Mark chapter 8, verse 13. Three for the road, number two. Keep a close eye on your theology and your politics. Keep a close eye on your theology and your politics. Let's look at verse 13. 
and he left them. And getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. Now I want you to understand that. I want you to think about Jesus leaving that prior conversation. Everything he's done, and they say, show us a sign. And Jesus goes, guys, let's get in the boat. And the guys are going, show us a sign. Show us a sign. And I think one of the disciples might be turning to Jesus and saying, dude, shut him up. Why don't you do something awesome? Show him something. Do something. Jesus goes, get in the boat. Get in the boat. I'm not showing anything to these guys. So he gets into the boat. Now the disciples had forgotten to take the bread. Remember they just fed the, the 4,000. How many basketfuls of leftovers did they have? Seven. They had seven basketfuls of leftovers. They leave them. They get in the boat. The disciples have forgotten to take the bread. And they did have, not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Listen, i got to be honest with you. If I was a disciple, this mistake I would not have made because I am always thinking about food. All right? Then they charge them. Oh, I'm sorry. Now the disciples have forgotten. So they're in the boat. They're talking about the food. Peter, I thought you were getting the food. John, you were saying, Thomas, you go, and they're arguing back and forth. And Jesus is going, I don't know if it's better in the boat or back with the Pharisees. Which is a better route for me to go? But then Jesus turns and says, hey guys, I hear you're talking about bread. Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven makes bread rise. It's like yeast. And Jesus says, be careful, beware of the Pharisees. Beware of Herod. Let me put it in this illustration. Life has a way of squeezing us. You squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. You squeeze an apple, you get apple juice. You squeeze a Christian, and you'll find out what their real walk with the Lord is like. When it really gets turned up, when the pressure gets turned up, when there's sickness, when there's trials, where there's financial hardships, when there's all these things going on, you'll find out what they're made of. You'll see what they're made of. And Jesus says, hey guys, beware. Beware of the religious leaders. Now you're hearing that and you're going, no, wait a minute, Eric, aren't you one of the religious leaders? Right? Beware. Beware of the religious leaders. I think theology is the study of God and the study of God's interaction with the world. I think it's important that we really understand what we believe and why we believe it. I remember when I was a young Christian and I told somebody I was a Christian. Somebody looked at me and they said, why do you believe in God? You know the Bible's all made up. And I had no response. Because my relationship with God was very shallow. And I realized I have to be prepared. And the other thing is, is you have to be prepared when you hear things in this world to go, is this truth or is this just man-made philosophy? You know, somebody was asking me about their church they go to, and I'm not going to name names about different churches, but they said, well, at, at our church they do this, they do this, they do this. Do you do those things at your church? I said, no, we don't. And he said, why not? And I said, well, we really are a Bible-based church, and so we go, our beliefs are based on the Bible. And I said, the things that you're doing um, at your church, where does it say that in the Bible? And I'm going to tell you, he goes, Actually, I've never read any of them in the Bible. And I said, then why do you do it? And he goes, I'm going to ask that next Sunday. I said, let me know how that goes. 
Jesus says, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Now I'm going to tell you something about Herod. Herod had a nickname. He called himself Herod the Great. And Herod was known as, he had created all these ancient marvels of the world and building things and that. But also, Herod had some very suspect things going on in his life. First off, the people he ruled over hated him. Secondly, Herod had an incredible ego. And then if anyone offended him, he would kill anyone on the spot. So, he beheaded his wife because she got him upset. He killed two of his sons. Why? Because they got him upset. He would kill anyone that got him upset. a matter of fact, when Herod was close to death, now I want you to think about this. This isn't in the Bible. This is Josephus, a Roman historian who wrote this down. He said that when Herod was close to death, he had a bunch of his enemies rounded up and arrested. But he didn't have them put to death. He said, listen, the moment I die, kill all these men. Because I know the people won't mourn for me, but if we kill all these people, they'll be mourning, and it'll be just like they're mourning for me. Now, guys, I want you to think how messed up that is. It would be like me saying, all right, I'm on my deathbed in the hospital. Listen, the first thing I want you, Ed, have all the worship teams killed the same day I, I, I die. That way, we're sure everyone will mourn. Pretty messed up. I can see the Hofers are thinking about leaving, right? That's messed up, but... Here's the deal. Now, fortunately, after he died, they did celebrate, but they didn't carry out those orders and they released the men from prison. But I share that because back when Herod was in, in power, the Pharisees formed a group called the Herodians. And they believed that they would get their religious freedoms through political means. But Herod was a madman. And interestingly enough, I was reading a, a historian who's not a Christian, and he said, that he, he shared all those things I just shared with you about Herod, and then at the end of it he said, but I highly doubt that Herod was uh, involved in the slaughtering of children in Matthew chapter 2. And I remember thinking, okay, you just told me that he beheaded his wife, that he killed his own kids, that he wanted to kill a bunch of people so that they would mourn when he died. Do I think he would slaughter a bunch of kids? I really do. But look at how this ends. Verse 17, but Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hard-hearted? Why do we have to keep repeating the grade, disciples? That's what he's saying. Having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear, and do, not, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of fragments did you take up? 12. Also, when I broke the seven, seven uh, for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of fragments did you take up? Seven. He said, how is it you do not understand? And we need to be careful about our theology. We need to be careful about our politics. We need to make sure we understand we know what we believe and we know why we believe it. And we also need to make sure that we are not bowing to man and man-made products thinking that they will solve biblical spiritual issues because there's no biblical thing that's going to solve or there's no man-made thing that's going to solve a biblical issue or a spiritual issue i was talking to christy berman who heads up cornerstone women's resource center and one of the things she said she said eric you know we're very passionate about uh 
laws that get passed that either support abortion or support pro-life and that. And she said, we debate these things, but she said, ultimately what it comes down to is we pray for God to change hearts. Because she said, laws are important, but she said, we pray that God would change the hearts of people. Let's make this at home. Keep a close eye on your theology and on your politics. Theology is defined as the study of God and God's relation to the world. One of the best ways we can understand God is by knowing his word. I want to read some of these verses. We'll put them up on the screen. From Psalm 119, 9 to 11, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Isn't it a wonderful idea to think, all right, God, remove the sin that is within me and fill it with your words to strengthen me. Let's look at this one from Joshua. The, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but, it shall, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do all according to what is written in it. For then you will be prosperous, and then you will have good success. What's a prosperous and successful life? If you ask that to the world, they would say, well, you know, I don't know, a, a, a family, uh, children, doing this, growing old. No, a prosperous, successful life is one that when it ends here, it begins in heaven. That's a prosperous and successful life. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that every man may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everyone knows that feeling when you walk into a situation and you're not prepared. Everyone can think back to those days when you were a student and you walked into an exam and you were not prepared. Everyone knows the feeling when you walk into an exam and you are prepared. You are ready. Matthew 4.4, 4, look at what Jesus says. It is written that man shall, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you want to keep sharp your theology, if you want to really look at politics through a biblical standpoint, filter it through the word of God. And listen, we should pray for our politicians. We should vote. I'm not saying that any of that stuff is wrong. But the Herodians thought that they would solve everything through politics. And that never has worked in all of time. When your head is transformed, you think different. You understand. You live in a more complete way. When your heart is transformed, you see the world, especially the people in it, differently. I always tell my kids, they'll get so annoyed about things that would go on on their college campus. And I would always say, listen, don't look at their behavior. They're lost. And when they're lost, you think about them differently. And then finally, when your soul is fueled by the Holy Spirit, it guides your steps and it gives you wisdom that is beyond you. Wisdom is not education. Wisdom comes from the Lord. Let's finish this up. Three for the road, number three. Ask God to reveal 
and cure your spiritual blur. So let's think about what Jesus has just gone through. He has the Pharisees come to him and they say, listen, show us a sign. We need more. You're not enough. And they want more. Then he comes into this situation where these guys are arguing and Jesus throws out something a little bit off topic and says, guys, I want you to beware. Beware of the Pharisees. You don't even want to know what's going to happen in a short time to me by their hand. Beware of Herod. Yes, Herod the Great. Beware. Because when the pressure comes on him, wait till you see what comes out. Beware. And now he gets to his next location and look what happens. Three for the road, number three. Ask God to reveal and cure your spiritual blur. Verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida. And I actually think this is a beautiful verse. He came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him that he might touch him. You know, so often you hear that word they and it says they accused Jesus or they did this or they did that. But I love in Mark 4 when the paralytic is brought by they, a group of people. I love this here. Here's a blind man, and they brought him to Jesus. I don't know anything about this blind man, but all I know is this. He's loved. He's loved. Because there's people who went, hey, Jesus is coming, and we're taking you. Grab my arm. We're going. And most of the time when someone is loved... What does it mean about them? That they have loved. See, it's hard to love people who are really difficult. But it's kind of fun to love people who are just lovely people. And I think this guy was a glass half full kind of guy. And when they got a chance to bring him to Jesus, they went, hey man, get up, we're going to get you dressed up, we're going to see Jesus. Just come along with us. And so they bring this guy, and they beg Jesus to heal him. Most of the people who come to Jesus for healing, they, the person themselves, is begging on their own behalf, please help me. Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, forgive me. Heal my daughter. Do this, do that. Instead, these people are going, Jesus, you got to help this guy. you got to help this guy. Because the reality is, is we live in a world where most of us would bring the blind man and say, before the blind man, hey, Jesus, I've been this weird thing on my shoulder. Can you touch this? Help this? Can you do this for me? Oh, yeah, and I brought my buddy over here, too. He's blind as a bat. Can you help him, too? Maybe you could do like a two-for-one. No, they begged Jesus, saying, Jesus, please heal him. He's worthy. Heal him. And now this is one of the things I think that Jesus is interesting to me. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he spit on his eyes, <laughs> he put his hands on. Guys, I just know, <laughs> I don't know why Jesus does the things the way he does them. But all I envision in my mind is this blind guy standing there and, and also just and I, and I think the guy's going, my friends brought me to him. So Jesus spits on his eyes 
And he put his hands on him, and he asked them if he saw anything. Now, this is a very interesting miracle because this is very different than any miracle Jesus did. He looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. He's very blurried. And what's one thing that you think a blind guy would know a lot about? Trees. Because he probably walked into his share of trees through the years. How would you like to be blind trying to walk through a forest? Tripping all over stuff. And he goes, eh, I kind of see that. Now, I thought it would be funny. I'm not going to do it. But can you imagine if we all took our glasses off and I said, read the screen. All squinting. He's like, I see men, but they're like trees. So then he said, uh, he put his hands on his eyes again. Fortunately, he didn't spit again. And he restored, and he saw everyone clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, neither go to the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Now, Jesus has a different path for everyone. The man who was healed of the demons, he said, go to the Decapolis and tell everyone. This guy said, just go home. Just go home. And that's it. Now, the age-old question is, why did Jesus... You know, like when I first read this and I was a young believer, I thought, I don't know, maybe Jesus didn't say a strong enough prayer or something like that. Or maybe this guy needed like a second like whammo from Jesus to get fully healed. Why is this that Jesus spit on him, told him, do you see anything? And the guy's vision is all blurry. And then Jesus has to do it again. Well, I truly believe that this was done this way. Because who would be with Jesus right now? Well, you got Jesus, the blind man. You probably got his friends who brought him. And then you got the disciples. And I think that Jesus did this because he was trying to reach these disciples. Here's what I mean. When Jesus met the disciples, they were completely spiritually blind. They didn't know anything, Right? Peter's boisterous and argumentative, and they're all fighting. And one of the guys, he's, he, he's, he's an ultra-politician and arguing everything over. Judas is stealing money from the money bag. All these things are going on. And Jesus is trying to work with them. And right now, I think the disciples spiritually are like this, going, I see men, but they're, they're like trees. They don't see clearly. They're in process. The disciples are in process. As time goes by, they're learning, they're growing, and their spiritual vision is still blurry, but it's getting a little bit sharper every moment. And Jesus heals this man. And at first, the man doesn't see real clearly. And then he sees perfectly. And I don't think it has anything to do with the man. I think Jesus turned around and said, guys, you understand this is what I'm doing with you. You see a little bit better than you did when I first met you, but I want you to know you still don't see the whole picture. I think this miracle directly responds to Mark 8, 18. Look back. What, what did Jesus say? Having eyes, you do not see. And having ears, you do not hear. And you do not remember. You don't remember what I've done, so you don't understand what I'm doing. 
You have ears that physically work, but somehow you don't hear the right message. And you have eyes that physically see, but you look at the wrong stuff. So what I'm trying to do is spit on you and get you to see the right things, hear the right things, and understand what I'm doing. And if Jesus can get us to see, hear, and understand what he's doing, holy cow. Now it gets exciting. So let's finish this up. Ask God to reveal and cure your spiritual blur. As I study the book of Mark, I find myself frustrated with the disciples. Why are their hearts so hard? Why don't they get it? They have spiritual blurry areas in their lives, and I would be foolish to think that I don't. All of us have a spiritual blur going on. I pray and I ask God, Father, reveal, the blur, reveal and cure the blur in me. What are areas in my marriage that are blurry? That's why Pam and I, we've been married 27 years. That's why I'm going on a marriage retreat. Why? Because I'm smart enough to know there's probably still some blur. And I want to work on that. Father, where is there blur in my relationship with my own children? Where are areas that I need to sharpen or focus? As a pastor, where are my areas that I'm blurry? As a friend, where are areas that I'm blurry? Most importantly, Father, where am I blurry in my relationship with you? Where are there areas that you're saying, Eric, we got to sharpen this up. we got to get better at this. we got to move forward. You know, a wake-up call for me was not long ago. I was reading through notes I had written years ago about different things about my relationship with the Lord. Now, years later, some of them have changed. Some of them have grown. Some of them have sharpened. But unfortunately, there's some of them that I'm going, Lord, I'm still kind of stuck in the same thing with the way I think and do, do things. Lord, what is that? Do you have a spiritual blur in your life? Is there a struggle that you've gone through that you're going, God, I just can't forgive you for what I went through, and so I'm just in this blur? I have friends that have gone through that. I told you I witnessed, a man, witnessed to a man, I gave him a New Testament. He'd been sexually abused by a youth group leader in his church, and it happened when he was young. And he said, Eric, I can't, I can't follow God. I can't follow God. This is what happened to me. I told him, I said, listen, man, I want you to know I am sorry. And that is awful. And there is a wickedness in men that there's no depth to it. It just keeps getting deeper. But I told him, I want you to know that, number one, it breaks God's heart and he loves you. And don't let the sin of this horrible incident that happened when you were a kid, don't let it drag you down the rest of your life because he's got a dream for you. He's got a hope for you. And I don't know where it went. He took the Bible. And Ida, you always say, just give him the Bible and let God do his work. And that's what I'm praying for my friend, that God will do his work. If you have a spiritual blur in your life, you're going to constantly say, God, you've got to prove it to me. And no matter what he does, it'll never be enough. And Satan knows that. Satan knows that. 
Because Satan will go, hey, you know what? I don't care if God will meet you now. I'll wipe that clear off your mind. And you'll be consumed by the next thing. If you're in a spiritual blur, you'll have more faith in people than you will in the Lord. And guess what happens when you have a lot of faith in people? They let you down. How many have ever been let down by somebody you were counting on? Okay, just me. If you have a spiritual blur, you will either go to the Lord for clarity or you will spend your life bumping off other spiritually blurred people. I did this game one time with our youth group. We were in a room maybe about this size. There was nothing in the room, no chairs, nothing. And I had them lined up on one end, and there was probably 60, 70 kids. And I said, listen, I'm going to turn off the lights, and I'm going to put on loud music. So you can't see and you can't hear, but I said, I want you to get from this side of the room to this side of the room, or from this side of the room to the other, but I don't want you to touch anyone. And so these kids, in the dark, I wouldn't recommend this all the time doing this. They're trying to feel their way out. Some of them are crawling on the ground. Some of them, but at the end of it, every single kid goes, I turn the lights back on, turn the music off, I say, how did we do? How many of you got through without touching anyone? No one. Everyone touched somebody. And the one kid goes, Pastor, it's absolutely impossible. You can't see, you can't hear. How in the world are you going to go from one place to the other without bumping into someone? I said, how many of you live your life like that? And one of my leaders goes, oh, that's where this was all going. But we do this in life. We bounce around, spiritually blurry people. And our world is so spiritually blurry that people are just bouncing all over each other. Insanity stuff going on. And I look at it and I go, you know what it is? Because no one is willing to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need a new prescription. you got to help me. Because I'm not seeing well. Why would you live in that blur when you know the great physician who will come and help you? And come alongside of you. You know, when I repeated second grade, I remember the weird thing was, is in September, they do this big assembly. And all the first graders are here, and all the second graders are here, and all the third graders are here, all the fourth graders are here, all the fifth grade, all these kids. And they're all lined up in their groups. And they all had like different colored t-shirts. And I'm wearing the second grade t-shirt. And everyone I went to school with, what are they wearing? Well, they're wearing the third grade t-shirt. And I can remember guys going, you got the wrong shirt on. Sugul, you're over here. And I remember as a little kid, it felt awkward. It felt weird. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm just going to be here or everything like that. And then, Eventually, somebody says, well, what are you stupid, and that's why you're there, or this or that. But I look back at it, and it never really bothered me a whole lot, because I knew two things. I knew Mrs. Mank loved me, and I knew she wanted the best for me. And I knew my mom, it's like a law, moms have to just love you like crazy. And I knew they would never 
put me in the wrong place. And I remember that about my mom when I was in second grade, and I remember that about Mrs. Mank. But somehow I forget that the Lord would never do that. He would never put me in the wrong place. He would never put me in a spiritual blur. He sharpens. He gives life. He forgives. He wants good things for me. And ultimately, here's the best part, ultimately, he wants me to spend eternity with him. How about that? How about that? We get all wound up in the 60, 70, 80, 90 plus years we might get on this earth, but do you know that you have a heavenly father that says, all right, you know what? I want to be with you during the 60, 70, 80, 90 years, but I want to be with you from alpha to omega forever with you. That should get your blood pulsating. That should be enough. And that should want us to strive for spiritual clarity. Let's stand up. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. But I want to invite you today. If there's something in your life that you're saying, you know what, Eric, I have really been held back by this blur. I have really struggled because of this situation or that situation. Have someone pray with you today. Do you think this blind man would have found Jesus on his own? No. He had friends that loved him. He had friends that loved him so much that he didn't, even ask the, he didn't even have to ask Jesus to be healed. These people went and said, Jesus, you, you got to do this for him. We love this guy, and he loves us. How great is that? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I know for, I, I'm sure in my heart that there are people in this room who are held up. They are limping through life, Lord, because they're lost. They're limping through life, Lord, because maybe something has happened. They've tripped, they've fallen, they've stubbed their toe or whatever it is, Lord, but they are spiritually stuck. And Lord, you're here throwing them a line. You're here to say, let me straighten out this blur. You're here to say, listen, I don't want to tell you to stop hurting. I don't want to tell you that, it's, that you know, I'm happy that you're in pain. What you're here to say is, let me be a part of this. Lord, you would never put us in a place where you don't want us to be. Lord, you would never treat us in a way that would make us feel less valued. And Lord, even when the world would say we're worthless, we're a treasure to you. A treasure so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us that we may have life with you here on earth and eternity with you in heaven. God, I know that there's blur in my life. Lord, I want to see the things you see. I want to hear the things you hear. And Lord, just please give me the strength to say the things you want to say. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.